Hello and welcome back to A Weirdest Thing Podcast. I am your host, Scotty Milder, and I'm here with one of my absolute favorite writers. Um, I'm so excited that she agreed to be on the podcast. Gwendolyn Keist. She is the three-time Bram Stoker award-winning author of The Rust Means, Reluctant Immortals, Boneset and Feathers, and Her Smile Will Untether the Universe. Pretty Mary's All in a Row, and The Invention of Ghosts. Her short fiction and nonfiction have appeared in Nightmare Magazine, Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy, Vastarian, Tours Nightfire, Black Static, The Dark, Daily Science Fiction, Interzone, and Lamplight, among others. Originally from Ohio, she now resides on an abandoned horse farm outside of Pittsburgh with her husband, two cats, and not nearly enough ghosts. So, uh, Gwendolyn, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. You know, you're one of the perfect guests to have on the show because we're not really a horror podcast but I talk about horror all the time because I'm a horror writer (laughs) you are you're probably one of maybe three authors you Paul Tremblay and Stephen Graham Jones that whenever I talk to people who are say that they're not horror fans I say okay you have to read one of these authors because (laughs) I think you guys your work absolutely appeals outside of the genre so well thank you (laughs) that's good company you put me with so thank you for that (laughs) (laughs) so I guess as I want to get started for people who don't, uh, I think any of the horror fans listening obviously would know who you are, but uh, for anyone who doesn't, uh, just go ahead and like tell us a little bit about where you're from and kind of your journey as a writer, how you got how you got started and how you got kind of started in horror. Yeah, yeah. So I live south of Pittsburgh and like my bio says, I'm on an abandoned horse farm. It used to be a horse farm here. So there's like lots of like, you know, creepy mm-hmm. old abandoned fences <laughs> and horse troughs and stuff right. like that. So it's kind of spooky, kind of gothic. So the, the, the gothic horror is all around me all the time and you know I've always been a horror fan both my parents are horror fans so it's always just been a thing that you know they my dad read me Edgar Allan Poe my whole life and Mm. you know my my mom loves Ray Bradbury and we would just watch horror movies together and so it just felt very natural to to become a horror writer something just I love the genre it was interesting I talked to Sarah Tantlinger about a week ago and she you know I I always think back to my how I kind of got into uh, Mm. horror and almost everyone I talked to who's a horror fan, their kind of gateway drug was like R.L. Stein and Christopher Pike. Um, and somehow I missed that altogether. I went like straight to Stephen King. So I'm just curious, what was your kind of gateway drug into the genre? <laughs> It's interesting. I did read R.L. Stein and I did read Christopher Pike. I always <laughs> forgot about Christopher Pike until a few years ago. Like I read yeah. it whenever I was young and then like people started talking about, about the books. Mm. And like, I didn't even remember some of them were Christopher Pike books till I would look up the plot lines and be like, oh, okay. <laughs> I think my cousins gave me those books. My, my older cousins read those. It was definitely Poe and Bradbury for me. Okay. Like I said, both my parents loved it. So it was like that, that was right there all the time. So that, those were definitely I would say say the sort of gateway 
drugs, but there, there were the R.L. Stein and Christopher Pike. And then I did start reading Stephen King when I was like 13 or 14. And mm-hmm. so it was like, that was pretty young too. I love his short stories. I don't think people talk about his short stories enough. They always go no, to the novel. No, not at all. I, I love Night Shift. Night Shift's such a great, such a great uh, collection. I, so good. I think, you know, I, I love Stephen King. I mean, Stephen King was my gateway into horror. Mm-hmm. I mean, as, as true of probably a lot of people and uh obviously i love the long novels and everything but i i'm with you i think the short fiction i think that's almost where he's at his best short fiction and the novella he doesn't write enough novellas i I agree i actually i loved his novellas i love different seasons that was like the next Mm -hmm. book i think i read after i read uh night shift and i was just those are just that's a great group of stories it's just a great group of stories yeah yeah, i agree i actually think that's like his best stop because i know i shouldn't say this on a horror podcast but some of his novels i couldn't get through like i remember oh i can't wait to read this and then i'd be like i remember being a teenager i don't really like this yeah i I mean the one everyone always brings up is insomnia and uh Mm. i did manage to make it through that one but man that was a push (laughs) i love stephen king but yeah there's definitely something and that actually kind of gets i want to get to some of your short fiction here in a little bit but i think you know Two of the most terrifying short stories I've ever read of Stephen King's were from Night Shift. It was The Boogeyman and um, Children of the Corn. And I just try to imagine those longer and they just fall apart if you try to. Yes, the boogeyman. I was hoping you would say that because that Mm -hmm. one, like that one haunted me as a kid. That is a dark, dark story. That is honestly terrifying. So I was hoping when you were saying, I hope he goes (laughs) with the boogeyman. I hope so. That one's really, really scary. Yeah, I think those are the two that scared me the most. And then the one that probably disturbed me the most was from Skeleton Crew, is The Jaunt. That was. Okay. It's it's kind of a sci-fi one, but it gets very cosmic horror, very Lovecraft. Ooh, I'll um, look that up. Yeah, that's that's one of my favorites. It's not scary the way The Boogeyman is. That's one that'll stick with you. <laughs> yeah, gosh, The um, Boogeyman. I hadn't thought about it in a while. Now I'll be thinking about it again. I have yeah. somewhere around the house. I need to reread it. It's yeah. been a few years. I remember that. Like, huh. And I always imagined the little kid's room to look like my room from like the first place we ever lived. I think mm-hmm. when I read it, we, we were living in, in our, the house where my parents still live, but I imagined our old apartment and I could just see, mm-hmm. see like it coming out of the. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. It's, it's, so, it's yeah. almost a perfect short story. I think it is. It's, it's really, it's a disturbing, a disturbing story. Yeah. So. <laughs> but you mentioned, so you mentioned where you grew up. I'm really curious about this because uh, so you grew up in, you live outside of Pittsburgh, but you grew up in Ohio, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, did you grow up close to Cleveland? I know the Rust Maidens is set in Cleveland. <laughs> 90 minutes south okay. so like you know not super close I went to undergrad at Case Western and uh, so okay. I you know I spent a lot of time when I was like from like 18 to 22 in that area uh, I never okay. actually lived on campus I actually lived south of the city <laughs> but like I I did still kind of I mean I spent a decent bit of time up there so yeah I um I have a real so- I grew up in New Mexico but I have a real soft spot in my heart for Cleveland because my dad is from there so Oh, cool. Yeah, his whole family is from Cleveland. So (laughs) I was very excited with the Rust Maidens that it was set there. Oh, thank you. Um, So one thing, I saw this on your Wikipedia, and I've tried to find more information about this. And I've not been able to find anything, but I, I'm a filmmaker and a film instructor as well as being a writer. Oh, 
okay. and I see on your Wikipedia it says you started as an independent filmmaker before you got into print. Can you talk about that? Because I'm I've I haven't been able to find any information on that. Yeah, because like it's it's thankfully all gone. Because like I was <laughs> not a very good filmmaker. I like uh, to think my ideas were good, but like especially when I was young, I was not a people person. I was way mm, too surly. And yeah. like you need to not be super surly if no. you're going to be a filmmaker. You you need to be able to roll with the punches. And when I was like right. 20 and a filmmaker, I was not able to do that nearly as well as I like to think I can now. But it was fun. It was fun while I did it. And it's it's funny because I, I I don't usually even think about it, but I happen to just be thinking about it earlier today <laughs> and thinking that like I'm very grateful I did it because that's how I met my husband. He was a oh, horror okay. filmmaker as well and did special effects. And so that's actually how oh, cool. he and I met. So it's like it definitely had good results in my life for me just not in the way that I thought it would in terms of being yeah. an actual filmmaker. <laughs> so, so. so was it like a narrative film like straightforward yeah. narrative and and yeah. a, a horror was it where yeah. you kind of focused yeah. on horror even then yeah yeah, yeah. um it, the the film thing is and I've talked about it on this podcast before I had kind of my own breakup with it <laughs> at a certain point and and it is it's the you really have to want to like work with people constantly and compromise and you have to be yes. you yes. know yes. willing to be a team player and there's a lot of ways that I can do that and a lot of ways I've discovered I'm not great at that <laughs> yeah when I was young like I said I wasn't good at it at all I think I'd be better at it now but I don't have like the drive for it that I had mm-hmm. when I was young I had a lot of drive to do it but then it was like the actuality of it. Like I would just be, I would get frustrated very easily. And that's not, you know, as a director, you've got to be able to like, really, you know, you're like the captain of a ship and you have to be able to do that in a way that doesn't make everybody super uncomfortable or be like, why am I? And especially with independent filmmaking, you usually can't even pay anybody unless you have a big enough budget, you know? And I did some acting and ones that, you know, we wouldn't get paid for and we'd all like collaborate with each other's projects. But it's like, because I used to even say at the time, like, oh, well, Ridley Scott always had like a reputation for being difficult but people were getting paid real money (laughs) like they were paying their mortgages like there's at least like justification for for showing up on that set so it was like I realized after a couple movies I'm like the second the second feature I made I was a little more chill on fortunately Mm. the first one not as much but like after a while I was like this isn't this I'm not good at this and I'm not gonna like torture people (laughs) to do this and that was actually my, my husband actually even suggested at that point he was like the one who brought up he's like why don't you do prose writing why don't you do mm-hmm. fiction writing you like storytelling like I don't think I can do that and he's like I think you can do that and that's honestly one of the ways that I was like all right I'll give it a shot and I'm like okay I don't have that's to like manage whole sets and everything I can do this better <laughs> so you had so you hadn't been uh like focused on prose writing before the filmmaking was, was it new I to was you young somewhat okay. I did when I was like in in like middle school and high school and I did a little bit of prose writing even in college I always forget that I actually took a couple of prose writing courses you know throughout college I would like figure out a way to work them in at the time Mm -hmm. I always looked at it as a way to kind of strengthen my screenwriting was like okay I'm going to do this type of writing to help strengthen this but it did you know I never really stopped with prose writing I always think that I did but when when you ask that (laughs) question like oh I took this class then I took that class I took this other class and I was doing (laughs) this so it was like it was always there but not as much of like a commitment to it as I was trying with film so when you decided to really focus on prose did you find it kind of going from that uh the frustrations of making movies did you find it freeing like was it yeah 
I really yeah. did because I really found that like if I still just imagined it like a movie in the way that I was imagining it with writing mm-hmm. uh, screenplays, it was actually very easy. It was just like imagine this as like a frame and what are we seeing going on in the frame? And that's kind of right. how I still approach a lot of my writing even now is like, how would this play in a movie? How would I see this on a screen? And just kind yeah. of using that as the way to go about it. Well, it's interesting. I think it, uh, it almost sounds like you and I might have had similar trajectories in some ways. I was very focused on prose when I was younger and then yeah. kind of in my mid-20s I was like I, I want to make movies so mm-hmm. I kind of set prose aside almost entirely and focused mm-hmm. on film and worked in the industry and everything for about 15 years wow. 10 to 15 years ish and when I went back to prose writing I found that it entirely changed mm-hmm. my writing style mm-hmm. and made me a much better writer and yes. now that you say it and I'm thinking about some of your work you're a very visual writer and I think mm-hmm. I can see that is that something you feel like bled in from the screenwriting definitely I think when I was younger before I was doing this the screenwriting it was a lot more just like oh thoughts in my head you know especially when you're a teenager right like right. I feel like that 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 happens anyways <laughs> but definitely when I got when I went back to it after I was like okay I'm not gonna do filmmaking anymore so how can I use this medium in a, in a similar way and yeah I found that that was that so much easier of like okay let's actually you know make this visual and that way it can like keep moving Mm -hmm. along and that also is another thing I try not to do the thing very much because I've seen this in other writing just throughout the years being a reader where it gets like really in somebody's head for like pages and pages and pages and it can start Mm -hmm. feeling like it's dragging I try not to do that because I think in a Mm -hmm. film you don't get that you don't get that kind of leeway and so it's always like keep this moving really try to get it moving along Yeah, I still, unfortunately, I'll, I can fall into the habit of like, you know, it's a it's a 20 page short story, five pages of which is just a character thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, so I need, <laughs> I need to remember my screenwriting training sometimes. Sometimes um, that works, though. And you know, sometimes yeah. I have to remind myself that they are different mediums. So it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be like a film every time, right. you know, you do get that, that benefit. And a lot of it does come down to the style of writing. Cause sometimes when, you know, I've read something, it's like two in the character's head. It's, it's mostly that it's a problem with the writing, not necessarily mm-hmm. with it being internal. Cause that can what still be really interesting. What I find though, for me is when I get stuck in that, I realize, oh, I actually don't know where my story's going. So I'm just kind of spinning my wheels until mm-hmm. I figure it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> so sometimes I... you got to write your way through that and then you go back yes. and cut. <laughs> exactly. That's when editing is really good because I so yeah. often find that like I'll go back to something and I'm like why is this so why is this not working and then I'll realize like a whole paragraph just needs to be cut or even a whole page mm-hmm. I've had that happen especially in longer right. work but I'm like this whole page isn't necessary we've already covered this information or it could be covered in about two sentences and like it, it's always so interesting when I realize that when I'll look at something I'm like why isn't this working I'm like oh you just need to remove this whole paragraph it's yeah. a relief though in a way because unless you have to hit a certain uh, word count you know mm-hmm. and that's going to take that word count down it's just like oh that's the easiest editing possible it's like yeah. it's not like oh I have to rework all these character details like just take out that paragraph and you're yeah done. yeah <laughs> I I had a story recently where I lopped off the first three pages and just realized it was all just backstory and exposition, but I had to write my way through it to kind of like ease myself in. So Yeah. And that, that I think is so important because sometimes it's like, if you don't know where it's going, the only way you can figure out where it's going is if you put the words on the page Mm -hmm. and that's why it's like so important to go back and edit and everything. But I agree there. A lot of times my first drafts are just, they're a mess. They're just so much stuff you don't need. Well, I always tell my students, because one thing I find with uh, student writers, and screenwriters in particular is they want everything to be perfect before they start writing and once it's hard Mm -hmm. then they kind of freeze up 
Mm-hmm. So I always tell them, you know, give yourself permission to write the shitty version of something. Yes. Um, yes. Cause you yeah. can always fix it, but if it, mm-hmm. if you don't get it out, like you yeah. can't fix something that's not there. So. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. that's, that's such good advice because that can be so hard. And like, I feel like a lot of writers are perfectionists. I, I think mm-hmm. that that's a thing that a lot of us share and it's anything creative. It's, it's a terrible danger to be a perfectionist because there is no perfection in literature <laughs> yeah. anyways. Right. I mean, by right. all technicalities, there is no perfection. We're not, you know, I always say that's like the one nice thing. Like we're not brain surgeons and if we get something <laughs> wrong, something really yeah. bad happens. Like if you write a bad, <laughs> sentence you could still have a great book with a bad sentence right. in it. you know it's not the end of the world right. so it's like letting yourself have that permission to just be like it's not going to be great the first time through it's okay you'll get yeah. it there it'll get there yeah, if you're committed to it and you like the story it'll get there yeah. right that's what the revision is for i i blow students mind sometimes and i'll tell them that oh i have things that i have 30 40 50 revisions on mm-hmm. and uh you know to them that's very daunting you know but once you kind of get used to that it's just it's kind of the process so yeah. So when you started with your shift of focus from film, did you immediately go to longer stuff or were you focused on the short fiction first? I For the first few years, it was definitely more short fiction. I'm trying to think. So when I first got back into it, I wrote a novel. It was a really bad sci-fi novel. It will never see <laughs> the light of day. We will move on <laughs> from that now. So but I will say the first attempt was to actually write a novel. Okay. And then after that, I was like, okay, this did not work out. Like, you know, mm-hmm. and it was kind of like, you know, all right, we'll try something else. And I always loved short fiction. Anyhow, I've always loved short stories. I, like I said, you know, Poe and Bradbury, the things that I read from them initially were, were short stories mm-hmm. or poems in the case of Poe. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I was like, okay, let's try short stories. And then I was there and did that for uh, several years before I wrote anything longer. I think it's about two to three years before I wrote anything longer. And then I wrote my novella, Pretty Mary's All in a Row. And then I wrote mm-hmm. Trust Maiden. So it was like kind of really working up to that from there. And, and it, honestly, then when I wrote The Rust Maidens, it was, it, was a, it was a much better process than the first one. And then actually there's another yeah. novel in between. There was another horror novel I wrote actually in between. It wasn't bad. It was definitely yeah. an improvement, but I, The Rust Maidens was much better. But it, mm-hmm. there, was, there was that one. It was not bad. It was a weird, like, weird little story with like a fun yeah. house. And it was, it was fun. It was fun. But it was, The Rust Maidens definitely like, you know, was when I was like, okay, I really built up right. this now. You know, it kind of, clicked with that one yeah I feel like it did and that was like okay I can I can see this I also was on a deadline for that one Uh, yeah that always helps yeah Yeah, right then I was like okay and actually I think now thinking back I actually had to ask for a few extra weeks on it I hate that I hate to be that (laughs) that happens sometimes yeah like can I please have an extra language here too yeah I've had to do that as a screenwriter Yeah, I've had yeah. to do that as a screenwriter and that it's, freaks out producers. <laughs> awful. That's an awful feeling. I'm always yeah. like, I don't want to be that writer, but sometimes I'm that writer. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, so you actually came up on the show before, uh, about a year and a half ago for a Women in Horror Month. I kind of did like a whole ov- overview of just like a bunch of my favorite women writing horror from like Mary Shelley to now. And your name came up and we were specifically talking about your collection and her smile one tether of the universe. And we both agreed that me and my co-host Amelia, we both agreed that that is the coolest title for a book um, <laughs> we've ever seen. She actually said she wants it on her tombstone. Um, <laughs> wow, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I said I wanted it on a t-shirt and she gave me shit for not being as committed as she was, but... <laughs> <laughs> I love that. 
but it is it's it's a great title but it's also just a great collection and i wanted to ask you about one story in particular and i just reread it it's the story that has just stuck with me for the last several years since i read it it's the clawfoot requiem can you just tell us a little bit about that story yeah so it's i I always call it the bathtub of blood story Mm -hmm. that uh the main character the narrator's sister commits suicide and the paramedics come and take the body away and but leave the bathtub of blood and she starts thinking that her sister is basically the spirit is still in there and mm-hmm. it goes from there it really did start with that image of a bathtub of blood like something okay you know because i think clawfoot bathtubs are really neat we don't have one here right. like and honestly now that i'm older i'm like mm, no that's a lot of work like getting <laughs> right. out of that thing no thank you like i'm i'm like already looking <laughs> to the days when i'm old and i'm like no i am not gonna be 75 <laughs> years old getting in and out of a clawfoot bathtub that, right. that <laughs> but like i still think they're really pretty i think that they've yeah. got this interesting kind of almost gothic feel about them anyways I would always imagine a gothic you know house having one and so it's something kind of beautiful and then with something obviously very grotesque in it and I was like okay well what's the story with this this image of blood I remember where Mm -hmm. I was in Pittsburgh I was like dropping my husband off at work and I remember the moment like we were in front of a fire station of all places maybe that was Mm -hmm. it the fire truck was going somewhere and I'm like where are they going and all of a sudden Mm -hmm. I just see this like bathtub of blood in my head I'm like wow what's going on with that and just kind of built the story from from there so that that the image of the bathtub of blood is the way you do it because and I don't want to spoil the story much but I do want to give a little bit of a trigger warning to the readers that it it does deal with suicide Yeah. yeah um and the imagery is so disturbing, but I felt like you handled it in such a tasteful and emotionally resonant way where mm. it's a shocking image that never felt like it was going for shock value. No, and that definitely wasn't what I wanted to do with it. Even though when I came up with the image, I was like, oh, that's really intense. Yeah. But it was like, I wanted it to be this thing of like the sadness that a lot of us carry when we lose loved ones. And especially when we lose loved ones suddenly or from things that like we torture ourselves that we could have prevented or something like that. And so mm-hmm. it was, I wanted to kind of build the story around that and, and have it have that kind of emotional core as to what's going on with this and everything. And also it would yeah. just get really, it would get intense pretty quickly. Like blood, all oh, that much blood is a lot. That's pretty, yeah. that's definitely a horror story. Well, it's interesting. So I, I read, and, and another thing, again, try not to spoil it, but one thing about the Clawfoot Requiem is it does deal with suicide and hints of family trauma, though it's never explicit what might've happened in this family. Yeah. I also reread, and I, I definitely want to mention this story because I'm actually in the same anthology as you, uh, Sister Glitterblood, which, by the way, congratulations, you just won the, is it the Ladies of Horror Fiction Award? Yes. Yes. It's yeah. the Ladies of Horror Fiction Award. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, so I'm, it's in the Violent Vixens anthology from Dark Peninsula Press. And uh, just log rolling for myself a little, I'm in the same anthology, but definitely get it for Gwendolyn's story because it's, <laughs> it's a fun an incredible anthology. story. It's a really yeah. fun anthology. I was really happy to be part of that. That one yeah so that's another story that i wrote that's about sisters and and yeah you know, i read them back trauma. to back and you know yeah. just reread them for this interview and okay they really paired together in a really interesting way i 
could see that. I wouldn't think that because I obviously wrote them years apart. Right. But yeah. Yeah. I could definitely see that. I, I actually, I think Sister Glitter Blood is a happier story, though. Like, it's a much Love happier Requiem, story. Much darker. But the, again, spoiler yeah. alert, but the ending for Sister Glitter Blood is a lot more triumphant. And so, you know, that that's a lot more fun. So that one, for anybody who hasn't read it, is actually, it it's the wraparound for it. It's structured as instructions for a board game. So the board yeah. game is actually called Sister Glitter Blood. And then these two sisters find this game that's basically <laughs> their own lives. And it's, they're following these instructions over the years. It's a really incredible story. And it makes me think of Pretty Mary's All in a Row. And I definitely want to talk about Reluctant Immortals, which is coming out soon. You managed to do something specifically with those three stories, or the three that I'm thinking of, where I guess you could say they're, they're self-referential in yes. a way that you could call postmodern um yeah yeah like particularly sister glitter blood you're very aware of the construction of it because it is it's written as instructions to a board game yeah um and then and you know pretty mary's all in a row i will we'll talk about that and reluctant immorals in a moment but there's the the characters they're they're referring to classic legends and Mm -hmm. characters from literature And so there's that self-referentiality, which often for me can get in the way of the emotional content, Mm -hmm. but somehow you, and particularly with Sister Glitterblood, it's very incredible to me that as constructed as that story is, by the time you get to the end, it is just, it's like a rallying cry for these two sisters. Like, the characters are as strong, the character arc is as strong as the construction of the story. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. How did, how did you approach that? Because that that's occasionally I'll read a story and I'll be like, I do not know how you did that. Like- <laughs> <laughs> Most of the time, I don't feel like I know how things work or don't work. There are times I'll have a story and I'm like, I don't know why this isn't working, but it's not. And other times, I think that one might work. Yeah. You know, I agree. Sometimes self-referential stuff, I can find it very tiresome or irksome. And mm-hmm. maybe that's part of why I like to play with it because it's something that when I when I feel like it works, I think it can work really well and be really interesting and be this right. kind of like wink at the audience of like, we all know that this is, you know, referencing itself. But it can also be, like you said, it can just feel like a gimmick. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of times I try to figure out a way to like, how can you do this? And yes, it's still kind of a gimmick to be self-referential or meta. It's always kind of still a gimmick. Can you do it in a way that kind of brings in what people already know and then build on that? And so for me, it's like so many of us had those board games as kids. Do kids still play board games? I hope so. I'm not really sure <laughs> i'm not sure i feel like they all play video games but i know that yeah. like all my you know gen x and millennial friends we all get together for board games <laughs> yeah right i think it's definitely a so. gen x millennial thing for sure right. and we all you know even if you didn't want to read the instructions so usually the instructions were the boring part like if i was reading mm-hmm. it, like i was playing a new game with my dad he would make us read the instructions like no i yeah. want to get started and it's like we don't even know how to play it so it's like you know i feel like there's a familiarity in that and there's kind of almost a comfort in it even though it's the boring part of of playing in the board game there's this kind of like comfort food feel Mm -hmm. to oh this is like being a kid and playing a game and this should be good and then to kind of subvert that of oh this is not these instructions are not good and to kind of like you know build on it from there so i was i wasn't planning to do this and if you're not comfortable with me doing this i won't but i actually have the story open in front of me do you mind if i just read the first couple paragraphs just so people kind of know what we're talking about um okay sister glitter blood Sister Glitterblood, for two or more players, object of the game, to be the first sister to escape the haunted house and flee the restless spirits that want to devour you whole. Welcome to the spooky world of Sister Glitterblood. 
We're thrilled to guide you through our sparkly little corner of hell. Once inside, you'll understand why nobody ever wants to leave. Dim the lights, roll the dice, take a chance. The ghosts are eagerly waiting to meet you. If you listen closely, you can probably already hear them calling your name. Be careful about calling back to them, though. Then the game might end sooner than you expect. And that's just the first couple paragraphs. And it and it really is. I mean, it's it, the story is structured around, you know, instructions to a board game. But it turns into this really lovely portrait of this relationship between these two sisters in a very traumatic home life. Yeah. There's a, again, I don't want to spoil anything, but, you know, there's a very dark turn to the story. And then it kind of ends in a more hopeful place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I, it's really engrossing like i said in a way that with the construction of it being you know kind of self-referential i really like i've read it several times and i just can't understand why it works as well as it does <laughs> um and i felt the same way about both pretty mary's all in a row and reluctant immortals and that you're able to take these iconic characters and bring so much humanity to them that mm-hmm. i almost forgot that they were iconic characters <laughs> Uh, I was I like just that. engrossed in the story. <laughs> but before before we get there, I do want to talk about The Rest Mains. So The Rest Mains is your first novel. Yes. And that's the one, it won the Bram Stoker Award. Yes, yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Just uh, give us like a little quick, I don't know, summary. <laughs> <laughs> so it takes place, it's in dual timelines. So the first, right. the main part of it takes place in 1980 in Cleveland. And then the second part takes place in 2008 in Cleveland. Right. And it follows Phoebe as she's sort of trying to unravel this mystery of why five of the girls in her neighborhood, including her best friend and cousin Jacqueline, start developing this very weird affliction in which they start turning the girls start turning into rot and rust like Mm -hmm. the rust belt where they live yeah i feel like and i'm sure this is not super original but i'm gonna go for that (laughs) anyway i feel like i've identified a theme particularly with some of the longer stuff Mm. that that recurs in some of your work where you have a group of either girls or women, a small mm-hmm. community, sometimes as few as like two or three or four, mm-hmm. kind of defiantly trying to create their own rules in society with this, you know, in opposition to, but also separate from this either oppressive or actually threatening male presence. And I feel like this is something that is, I see it definitely in the rest means. I see it mm-hmm. definitely in Pretty Mary's All in mm-hmm. a Row and in Reluctant Immortals. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and definitely. even in a way in Sister Glitterblood, although yeah. the, the male yeah. presence is a little less clear, but yeah, yeah, I think it's interesting. I would just say threatening presence, though there is like because in Rust Mains, it's not necessarily male presence, it kind of is, it's more just the neighborhood yeah. in general. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there is there is that kind of element, but yeah, definitely from some kind of threatening presence that may very well be. Mm-hmm. maybe even i hate to say this because this sounds so cliche to say but almost patriarchal almost this idea well, of maybe not so much men as it is the existing system that sort of says to women you I, can only yeah things you know so much that because i always feel bad because like i always say my best friend in the world is my husband <laughs> and yet yeah. all my work is always like men are evil and it's like it's not really that it's it's the idea that society puts all of us in these boxes and doesn't sure. let us out and says this is all you can be and that's what really scares me a lot as yeah and i guess that's when i say threatening male presence maybe that's sort of what i mean is more this patriarchal like i think in the rest means it's you know you have the girls who are transforming it's four of them isn't it five i think five 
It's, um, been, it's been a few years. I'm always yeah. like, can I name all of them? I'm always scared somebody's going to ask. <laughs> like, I remember it's been years. <laughs> um, but they're, you know, they're, they're literally transforming into glass and rust Mm -hmm. but you have the reaction of the neighborhood which is not like to be horrified and how do i we help these girls but it's to judge them yeah and it feels like it's very much this targeted the the girls quote unquote are doing something wrong they're not playing by the rules yeah what i think is interesting because i think yeah and and i i definitely did not mean to imply that like these are not like man-hating books or anything (laughs) Try not to be man-hating, even though sometimes I'm like, you know, every once in a while I'll get a review that says that. And I'm like, I'm I'm not going to argue with you. I mean, I can see how one could get that from it. That's definitely not how I feel. But I do do think, like, you have a very interesting approach to, I guess we would call, like, dealing with toxic masculinity as Mm. a force. Because I think that's definitely at play in uh, Reluctant Immortals. It's very much at play in Pretty Mary's all in a row. Yes. I haven't finished it yet, but I'm reading Boneset and Feathers, and I feel like it's coming in there as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, What is interesting, though, is it's not this clean binary of the oppressive male figure and the victimized woman. It's what I really appreciate about all these books is this that sense of defiance that all mm. of the female characters have where they're not giving up. That you know, it's mm-hmm. I think it's very clear in uh Pretty Mary's All. Let's talk about Pretty Mary's All in a row. Okay. So it's a novella and it actually came out before the Rust Maidens. Yes. I believe so. Let me think. Yes, it definitely did. It came out in 2017 and Russ Mains came out in 2018. I wrote them the same year, but then the novel didn't come out till the next year. Yes. How would you describe, how would you summarize? Like, again, I'm trying not to spoil anything, (laughs) but how would you summarize that? Pretty Mary's All in a Row is the, is a bunch of Marys from folklore. So like Resurrection Mary, Mary Lloyd, uh, Mistress Mary, quite contrary, um, Bloody Mary, Mm -hmm. and and here I am. I'm always forgetting one of the Marys. I always do this. Mary Mack. Mary Mack. Mm-hmm. She's from yeah. a um, nursery rhyme. And so it's like right. different Marys from folklore and nursery rhymes. And they're all ghosts living in this house. And they don't know how they got there, you know, or where they came from. And they're, they have to actually scare people in order to like survive. And so they all go and haunt places each, each night. And then they come back together and like kind of share nourishment from haunting, Mm -hmm. but they're trying to unravel again. Everything with mine is like unraveling mysteries, Uh, unraveling like the mystery (laughs) of who they are and like where they came from and how they can kind of escape this fate. Yeah. And what, what I loved about that, you know, it's from the the perspective of resurrection, Mary Reed, and she's, you know, she's haunting this, the strip of road in Chicago that she has to go back to every night basically yeah and she doesn't understand the rules you know mm-hmm. she's she's sort of thrust into this you know strip of road that she's haunting and then she's back in the house with her mm-hmm. what she calls her sisters the other marys mm-hmm. none of them like you said they don't know why they're there or mm-hmm. or the rules of their existence they don't remember their past lives mm-hmm. but you know things sort of start to unravel both as this again this kind of amorphous Mm -hmm. he presence starts to present himself to re and she starts pushing back she starts changing the rules herself and what i like is that sense of defiance and it kind of makes me think about you wrote an essay um and i believe it also won the stoker award it was in vesterian i'm forgetting the name of it uh it was about uh charlotte perkins gilman yes yes um and that essay, you know, you were very focused on her as this kind of figure of defiance. 
Yeah, this this idea of like within the yellow wallpaper, I, I remember the first time I think I talk about this in the essay, the first time I ever mm. read it was in a uh, college literature class and everyone thought it was so sad, except me, I thought it was so triumphant at the end, like she's mm-hmm. literally crawling over her husband who put her in this room because she just given yeah. birth and was like, oh, you know, you're too depressed, we're just gonna put you in this room like that's gonna help anybody. <laughs> and so it was so interesting to me and like, that was just one of those moments, especially coming, you know, I was already a horror fan, so coming from horror, like, like I, I saw this being this great ending that she's literally climbing over the person that has oppressed her. And so it was like, I thought it was great. And everybody else was like, this is so sad. And I remember being like, <laughs> oh, I got something really different out of this. And so yeah. looking at some of uh, Gilman's other wor- other short stories, and was, you know, kind of seeing that and that, that sort of defiance for, for the boxes that people put you in, in in life. Yeah. And I have to admit, you know, I, I also read uh, The Yellow Wallpaper as a sad story. And it's one of my all-time favorite stories. It, it's a Again, I, I talked about it on the podcast. I think it's kind of a perfect story, mm-hmm. but it wasn't yeah. until I read your essay that I thought, yeah, it actually is kind of a triumphant story. And it really <laughs> is about her. Like she kind of wins in the end. Yeah. And that's... I mean, how long will she win for? That's hard to know. Right. But I sometimes <laughs> look at short stories in particular as kind of existing almost more as ideas or symbols. Mm-hmm. And so it, where you end to me is a very telling moment. So it's like you end at that moment where she's crawling over him. To me, it's like, maybe she will get out of this. Who knows? I mean, maybe, maybe she'll mm-hmm. just crawl out of the room. Eventually. <laughs> maybe she'll crawl into the wallpaper right. and hang out with the woman on the wallpaper. Like, I don't know. Like, yeah. there's a lot of possibility <laughs> for how that could go in a direction that was still, you know, creepy obviously but positive at least better than just being locked in a room that's yeah well it's interesting as we're talking about it i hadn't thought about this before but i almost feel like there's with the clawfoot requiem there's almost a a connection between that and the yellow wallpaper in a way because the clawfoot requiem as dark as it is has its own sort of dark triumph at the end and again it's one where we're not sure how long it will last (laughs) yeah that's how i feel about the end of the clawfoot requiem too like i said it's not as triumphant as the end of sister glitter blood which i consider you know it's a scary creepy ending but still i consider a happy ending whereas clawfoot requiem might kind of feels a slightly happy ending but in a really really dark not, right not definitely not the type of happy ending anybody would want to have like it's <laughs> yeah. just you know but yeah. it, it isn't it isn't a totally dour negative ending in my opinion she's still no. there's a little bit of that like i got a little yeah. bit of what i wanted out of this it wasn't quite what i wanted that's a story right. though and i try to do this because like you said like sometimes it is like threatening male presence the uh male character in clawfoot requiem is actually a decent guy like her <laughs> actually really is you know he's not he's not able to help her because what she's going through but he's definitely not a bad guy at all and in pretty mary's all in a row i think his name is david right david yeah What's funny is I consider his character and the character of Michael and Reluctant Immortals to have similarities to the point that mm-hmm. I almost, I think I've messed up their names when talking about it. <laughs> like they're both these, they're really decent guys. They're decent guys who've gone through a lot, but you know, definitely are not toxically masculine because I, right. I hate to write about toxic masculinity and all the guys are bad because then it's almost like, oh, well, this is all guys. And yeah. It's obviously not. Well, I always say we'd be in a lot more trouble if all guys were bad right. because like, that would be an even worse world than we currently have right right well and i think the way you framed it where it's you said about you know patriarchy and the systems it's also it's about you know these the threatening figure whether they're male or not male because in a clawfoot requiem it's the ant yes uh, who's the threatening figure yes but they're they're authority figures they're figures of power yes um and they are kind of buying into a system and a set of rules Mm -hmm. like the ant seems like very religious in the clawfoot requiem and so she's bringing her judgment yes which becomes the 
the driving thing there. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty Mary's all in a row. That was one that has really stuck with me. Oh. Um, I read it a year or two ago and then I just reread it and I was surprised by how much of it, I, like how clearly I remembered it. Oh, that's um, good. <laughs> yeah. And it's really, you know, particularly the ending of that. And one thing I think, and I think I saw this in an interview where you, you really do like to infuse your horror stories with a sense of hope i do i mean there's always mm-hmm. that joke about like hope punk or whatever and i, I don't want to like <laughs> buy into that but like i like the idea especially if the you know like you said a lot of my work is about defiance and is about standing up to things that are mm-hmm. wrong or that we see as as not being just i feel like if you have that message and then the end is like oh by the way it's hopeless it, it actually i feel like kind of undercuts it's, the defiance. yeah it's defeating you know right Sometimes you do lose. And even some of what I consider to be happy endings in my stuff are still, you know, like we said with Clawfoot Requiem, it's it's a very dark victory. It's not mm-hmm. a positive, you know, hooray, we're all like, you know, real super happy at the end. But it's trying to say there's at least an ability to keep moving forward. You you may have right. lost the battle, but you haven't lost the war kind of thing is the way I sort of look at it. <laughs> yeah. There's still movement forward. Right. Well, yeah, I think back to the Rustmings, which I just had a very visceral reaction reaction to that book that I'm not even sure I entirely understand um <laughs> like I really the something about me really related to that book even though it was like nothing to do with me or my life or anything <laughs> but it hit me on this kind of core emotional level and that ending there is a sense of triumph there mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it's paired with a real sense of loss particularly yes. for our main character Phoebe yes. who is kind of yeah. uh again I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't uh read it but she is not i guess she's kind of left behind is what i would say yes yes um and so that point of the thing that she's been trying to do the whole book she doesn't get she she definitely does not get the thing she wants but she gets something else instead and i think right and and for the realize that's life in a lot of ways you know we don't always get what we want (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) well and it seems like and for the maidens themselves the rest mains themselves it does seem like a triumphant ending but it's hard to know because we don't again trying not to give too much away but yeah. it, it's it's ambiguous you it know. is it is i mean but it's definitely not, that it's I should not say a clearly this, i consider a triumphant ending for them yeah. i mean especially again under the circumstances it's another kind of dark victory in that in that regard of like right. it's you know you win but it's not in the way that you would have wanted to win so mm-hmm. yeah yeah so let's uh, uh, let's go ahead and talk about reluctant immortals because okay. this is coming out when is it coming out august 23rd august 23rd like just over a month from right this moment yeah <laughs> <laughs> so i uh was at StokerCon and they were passing out advanced reader copies of a bunch of books and i grabbed yours i grabbed the new gabino iglesias book which i also read it's excellent and i was really kind of taken aback by reluctant immortals <laughs> in a in a way and again it's got it definitely has a similarity to pretty mary's all in a row and mm-hmm. that it's got these iconic characters kind of thrown into yeah. a story together do you want to kind of give us the the setup for it yeah yeah, so it is about Lucy Westenro from Dracula and Bertha Antoinetta Mason from Jane Eyre, and mm-hmm. they are both immortals living in California in 1967 during the Summer of Love, and they're both still trying to escape after all these years, Dracula and Edward Rochester, and during this one summer, they all collide together, including with, with Jane Eyre, and that's uh, mayhem ensues. California, mm-hmm. hippie mayhem ensues. Yeah. <laughs> it is... It is such an interesting mashup because it's got, you know, it's it's a mashup between Dracula and Jane Eyre, which is mm-hmm. not a mashup I would have expected. 
but then <laughs> you put it in the 1960s with like the backdrop of like the hippie movement and this mm-hmm. kind of almost sense of a manson style cult yeah yeah it's not exactly that yeah it's not exactly like that but you know there were a lot of cults in the 60s anyways like i made my husband watch a number of documentaries with me because i didn't want it to feel too manson even though i'm okay with that comparison but there were a lot at that time there were a lot of like groups like that Mm -hmm. well it had it had a little bit of the sense of like a manson type cult but then it had a little bit of the almost like the what is it the est est uh self-help stuff yeah yeah. like it it definitely yeah it definitely was its own thing and again i'm trying to be somewhat vague (laughs) i guess first off just where did the concept come from and i I think i read that i've read one of the short stories it was based on two of your short stories right and i read Mm -hmm. the one about lucy weston i have not read the one about bertha but yeah, so it's uh, based fairly loosely on uh, yeah. my short story, The Eight People Who Murdered Me, excerpt from Lucy Westenra's diary that was in Nightmare Magazine. And then another one I wrote that was a much more like just gothic pastiche called The Woman Out of the Attic that dealt with a mm-hmm. lot of different, you know, uh, of those type of gothic kind of archetype of this woman, like the first wife who's like evil or like disregarded, but then taking it from her perspective. So that that was kind mm-hmm. of like the start of, of the book. And from there, I was like, well, you know, when would be a good time to set it in? Because I'm not somebody, I don't know that I'm ever going to write during the Victorian era. I love mm-hmm. reading things from that era. I love yeah. watching things from that era, but I'm not as, a, as, a, as like a reader or viewer, I love it. But as a storyteller, for whatever reason, I'm not in as inspired by it. I think because it is a very prim and proper time. Right. And again, that kind of goes against like, you know, a lot of the things that I, I find interesting and that kind of defiance. Not that there weren't defiant women in that era. I mean, look at Mary. Sure. Story, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think she was earlier than what I think maybe the right. Victorian era, but still that kind of, you know, I always think of them as really tight corsets and everything. But, <laughs> yeah. You know, I thought I don't necessarily want to do it in the time period it takes place in because those are already a lot of great variations have been done in that time period. And it was like the 60s just came to mind for me because I feel like what we're living through right now, the closest analog of the last hundred years is the ni- late 1960s. I mean, yeah. needless to say, we are living through a very politically tumultuous time. <laughs> for and sure. So, <laughs> and I always look to the 60s and think, okay, we got out of it that time. How did we right. get out of it that time? And wanting to spend some amount of time in that era, even just thinking about it from that perspective, how it was at once a very liberating time and also still a very, you know, restrictive time in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Yeah. And so that was, and I just love that era. You know, I've, I've researched that era since I was a kid. Like I used to get like books out about the 60s when I was like 12 or 13 from the library. And so mm-hmm. I've always loved that era. And I already knew a lot about it, just that I just knew from over the years. So it was like really a lot easier than, you know, an era that I don't know as much about. And so, yeah, and it was just a really fun era to write in because it was just, it was such an unusual period of time in American history. And to put these two characters that in this setting are much more progressive than the versions of them that you right. would know, but at the same time come from a more like, you know, buttoned up era. So they still feel very out mm-hmm. of place in the 1960s. Yeah. Well, one thing I thought was really interesting, and I saw, I think I read in a review of the book where they knocked you for this, and I thought that the, whoever the reviewer was completely missed the point. But the Lucy that we get in Reluctant Immortals mm-hmm. is an evolved version. Of, yes. If you've read Lucy, yes. if you've read Dracula, yes, Lucy is presented in a very Victorian sexist yes. way as 
this kind of frivolous, uh, easily duped, gullible character. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, now you're picking up with Lucy, what, 80 some years later? Yeah. Yeah. I think 70 years after. Yeah. And she's been a vampire all this time. And like, she's maybe a little bit grown up, a little bit more cynical. (laughs) Yes. And it it makes sense to me that she's not. And so the the critic that I read, they were like, it's not the Lucy from Dracula. And I was like, of course it's not. (laughs) What are you talking about? Yeah. One of the things for me is I feel like a lot of us, you know we we might be in some ways the same but i mean are most people the same as they were when they were a teenager Mm -hmm. you might have some similarities but a lot of us we become a little more world weary or we become a little more street smart about certain things and i feel like being immortal and i always say this like i would not want to be immortal like that sounds Mm -hmm. terrible to me because it's like yeah you know being alive for that long and having to live through it and especially with what happens to lucy it's like she's also been very traumatized and so it's like you know she is very world weary at this point She's very aware of what she has lost, is what I feel yes. like. That's and a I great think, way of describing it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I think, and I think it's partly, it's a big part of why she and B cling to each other so much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is again, it's one of those themes I think I I see pop up in a lot of your work is mm-hmm. these women who have been isolated for whatever reason, clinging to each other and forming their, you know, own yes. strength together, basically. Yes. But, you know, Lucy's very, you know, the, the book's mostly, I would say, from Lucy's perspective. Yeah. yeah. Um, she's very aware of what she's lost. She's very aware of what Dracula took from her. She's also has this response. And I don't think this is a spoiler because it's set up kind of the first chapter. But she has this responsibility of kind of taking care of Dracula's remains and making sure he doesn't reconstitute himself. Yeah. So yeah. that that's just like the this nuclear bomb that's hanging over. Yeah. Her. And like, that just seems awful to me. That was one of the reasons I wanted yeah. to do it. Because it's like, that just seems terrible. This person person literally murdered you has just been torturing Mm -hmm. you for decades and you're the one who has to take care to make sure that he doesn't escape again yeah so yeah so she's got him in like several urns and like she has to even keep the urns away from each other because if they get together they'll actually figure out how to break themselves open so they're they're sentient and they're even all different kind of parts of his personality so like some of the urns aren't as bad yeah and some of the urns are real mean and like right. really i like the one urns. that's always hot like every time she touches the urn yeah. it's like burning her fingers and yeah I, I do like actually i thought the urns to me was the scariest part of the book because every oh, time huh. they were getting close to each other i was like no you can't put them in the trunk together you gotta you know <laughs> like i was very concerned about the urns all the <laughs> oh that's great that makes yeah. me happy <laughs> yeah it was very it was very suspenseful <laughs> um talk about b a little bit though because i thought you know in a, in some ways i mean even again not not trying to log world about myself too much but my story in uh the violent vixens book is is a little bit similar in that okay. um it's a vampire character mm-hmm. uh, you know a woman who is on the run from the vampire that turned her at Mm -hmm. you know some point in the distant past i feel like that is something that you know like we've all seen kind of a version of that in a lot of Mm -hmm. things but to bring jane Eyre into this i thought was really interesting and really creative what was it when you wrote these two stories what was the light bulb that was like wait these 
this is the same story. You know, I, I feel like when I look across literature, because also originally, when I originally pitched this to my editor, I wanted to have Sybil Vane from the picture of Dorian Gray, who's the, um, the one that he just treats absolutely terrible at the, mm-hmm. at the sort of early part of the book. Because I thought about like how each of these women were sort of tossed aside, even within their own <clears throat> stories. Right. And each of them, like, especially like, you know, especially viewed through the lens of the Me Too movie, in particular but just viewed yeah. through the lens of just being kind to people right like they're all treated very very badly you yeah. know lucy probably least of all at least within dracula because you know a lot of the movies don't do this but the original book a lot of it is about trying to save lucy i mean they really do yeah. try they they do a terrible job they don't have any yeah. idea what they're doing <laughs> but like van helsing just irritates me so much throughout well, I, you know? I i feel like you mentioned that in the book that he was pretty incompetent <laughs> he really is like what's interesting yeah. is some of the film versions make van helsing fairly competent yeah when you go back to the original like book he's he's just like he's and like some people say it's like here's dracula who's this creature that we don't know what he is and right. he's like i mean like let's kill him and it's like honestly if nothing else <laughs> if you're a scientist you should want to study him not right. that that's nice either but like <laughs> it is like this really weird reaction and so like van helsing especially the books version of van helsing not the peter cushing van helsing which i right. still love <laughs> i love peter cushing so it's yeah. like it's not the peter cushing van helsing i'm talking about it's the book van helsing yeah. <laughs> But yeah, like, you know, at least with Lucy, within the context of the book, they do at least try to, like, save her. They really do. A lot of the movie versions, she's kind of thrown aside. But the book really does focus a lot on, you know, I think over half of the book is them trying to save her. That's true. I I kind of forgot that. I always feel like the book is so focused on saving Mina. But you're right. They start, like, Mm -hmm. Lucy was the failure which raises exactly. the stakes for Mina. You exactly. Know. You know, but it's still the same type of thing of like, you know, one of them dies so the other one can live. And actually, even with a uh, picture of Dorian Gray, there's the, there's the girl that, that lives at mm-hmm. the end. I haven't read that one in a while. I need to go back to that one. Yeah. But and then obviously with Bertha and Jane Eyre, like it's not until she's dead that Rochester and Jane can get married at the end. Yeah. And so it's like, she's got to be gotten rid of. You have to get she's... rid of her in order for, for the main characters to have a happy ending. I mean, she's almost a MacGuffin. Like she's she's an obstacle to be overcome. You yes, know, she's absolutely. not a person in Jane Eyre. Mm-hmm. She's they certainly don't see her as a person. No, no, and we never get anything from her perspective in the book at all. You know, yeah. so it's like, yeah. So it was just seemed to me like it just went so well together, and they were also both characters that I was just interested in. I, I loved Lucy from the time I was young, mm. and you know, first knew what Dracula was, yeah. and I always felt more connected to Lucy than to Mina <laughs> because Lucy seemed like a lot of fun. She seemed like somebody yeah. <laughs> you want to hang out with. Like she seemed like yeah, she's you know, kind of the party girl. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. As I was going to say, you'd want to oh. go out with her on like a Friday or a Saturday night. Mina would be fun. You go study in the library with Mina, but you're gonna go out and party with Lucy. And so she always just seemed like a lot of fun. And it was like, so I was like, oh, poor Lucy. And so that just always stuck with me. And then, you know, I watched Jane Eyre with my dad when I was a kid. And I was like, in the Orson Welles Jane Eyre, which was the first one I ever saw him and Joan Fontaine and like the Bertha character is like in shadows like you see yeah. her like creep across a couple times and like that's it like and I looked it up because I was like well who who played her I don't even think there's a record of who played her I think it's one of these yeah. things that's kind of like it was just an extra like it wasn't it, it was so inconsequential even though it's the entire point of the, the right. story you don't even give the the actress credit which is like one more element of how yeah you know this character and even the people who played her have been thrown aside so yeah well it's interesting uh, it had been years since I read Jane Eyre I think I read it in high school 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but I remember the basics of the story. But when I was reading Reluctant Immortals, I was kind of going, sort of doing the Sparks Notes online thing <laughs> to like remind me of uh, some of the details from Jane Eyre. And one thing that I had never, I don't think, realized is that this character could be perceived as being mixed race and that there's a real racist yes. aspect yes. to how she is treated. I don't think yes. I, and weirdly, I don't think that came up in like our class discussions when I was in No, a lot of times it didn't. And I had seen the movies before I ever read the book. And then like you go to the book and it's like, this character is very possibly biracial. It, the book never explicitly says that, but enough details are mm-hmm. in there that that is a very, absolutely a reading you can you can take on it. Right. That, that was the direction I went with it because I felt yeah. like, you know, that that plays into it because it, there are things that he says Rochester says about Bertha that are very much very much racist and some of the research I did even said that even if Charlotte Bronte didn't intend for her to be biracial the idea still was because she was even born in that area and not born yeah in it was still racist no matter what the indication was that Rochester was being racist regardless so that yeah because like, she's and very I much presented that. as this like savage mad woman which when you think about it in racial terms is pretty gross (laughs) really gross and like i said well you know in in most of the film versions it they just cast the role in with a white actress or as in the orson welles version you don't even really see her so we don't even know Right. And so that's definitely, you know, glossed over. And so I, I didn't know that till I was much older. And I was like, wow, okay. Mm-hmm. So this, that adds a totally different element and is much, and not that it's not scary to begin with, but it's got an even scarier colonialism, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and racist vibe that I did not realize until I, I was older and, and actually yeah. read the force material. So, yeah. So one thing I, I do want to mention is, you know, we have Lucy and Dracula, obviously, mm-hmm. and we understand why they're immortal, but you had to find a way to get mm-hmm. birth in Rochester yes. in the same. And I yeah. thought it was real. I don't know if you want, like, I'm again, trying not to spell anything. I don't know if you want to go into it but i just want to say it was the most like ingenious creative way to get there i thought (laughs) it definitely i feel like i can say it definitely has to do with that attic it has to do with something about the attic because that was something when i was coming up with the idea because that was that was one of the initial like challenges it's like okay well why is she immortal? Like, like you said, with Dracula and Lucy, like we know we can come into this. You don't have to explain that, that sure. to anybody vampires. that vampires are immortal. But with <laughs> right. these characters, you know, what is it? And I, I just kept like going around and I'm like, I don't want them to be vampires. I actually didn't want to go in that direction. I thought it would be kind of interesting point of tension if there's different reasons why they become mm-hmm. immortal. And so, and I just kept going back to that attic and thinking, why not have it be something that's already centered on what we know about the main thing we all know right. about the character of Bertha is that she was married to to Edward Rochester and that he kept her in an attic. And so right. it's like kind of playing with that and, and focusing on that. And so I thought it was really, uh, cause I, I was reading it sort of wondering like, okay, how are you going to get there? Like, how is that <laughs> going to make sense? And then once, once you get the explanation, I was like, Oh, of course. like it couldn't be any other way (laughs) that's always nice I think as a writer because that's how I felt when I got to that point I'm like now I can't imagine it being any other way and it's always nice when you get to a point in a story when you're writing you're like now I can't imagine having gone any other direction and that's when you're like okay I I think I did pretty good here Mm. (laughs) fingers crossed I always say mileage may vary but (laughs) but yeah I thought it was very you know I like I said I had a very visceral reaction to the Rust Maidens 
And with Reluctant Immortals, I think, I'm not sure what I expected, but it was like, it was so rooted in the characters. Like it's a book about friendship. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, it's, it's scary and suspenseful and it's got these scary ass urns with Dracula in them. And, but it, it is one of the most powerful stories of just like an enduring friendship that I yeah. think I've read in a long time. Well, thank you. Thank you. Because that was definitely what I was going for was like, you know, their friendship really is the core of the story. And the thing that kind of moves everything through is, is Lucy mm. and, and Bertha B. She goes by the name yeah. B. That is, that, is the, that is her chosen right. name. So yeah, just Lucy and B really being united against the things that are happening to them and really being devoted to each other and as friends. So yeah. Yeah. And I think again, like uh, we were saying with Sister Glitter Blitter, Pretty Mary's all in a row, it's there's an approach you could have taken that would have just been about the gimmick and the self-referential mm-hmm. nature. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it's so rooted in, like I cared so much about their friendship, that there are moments that it feels like the friendship, someone is coming in between them. Mm-hmm. again trying to be a little bit circumspect and i i literally was wanting to yell at this other person like go away because <laughs> i just wanted i didn't want anyone to come between lucy and b <laughs> oh that yeah. makes me happy Thank you. <laughs> and of course the person who's you know coming in between them is like you know not a terrible person or no. anything either so no no but but I was definitely like, I was, uh, I think I was with Lucy in, in that sort of, um, where'd you come from? You know, kind of this, this seeing this person as an interloper, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was a very, very powerful book. And, and again, like I, going back to the beginning, it's a book I've been telling people about, even people who are not horror fans, who oh. people who were like, oh, I don't read that stuff. Or if you, if I describe and say, well, it's about Lucy from Dracula, oh, I don't read about vampire stuff. It's like, no, you have to, this is not what you think it is. <laughs> yes, it's, it's scary and dark and it's got that, but there's, I think it's really got an appeal that goes beyond the genre. I always hate to say transcend the genre because it always makes it sound like, or something that needs to be transcended. Yeah. But I think yeah. it goes outside of the genre. You know? Yeah, I think so. It, it's definitely horror. And it, and because, like you said, it's so self-referential to horror and to the gothic that I feel like that very much roots it in horror. But I do think it, it is more, again, I don't want to say more than horror, because again, that makes it sound like, oh, horror is bad. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm totally good. Like my next book, it, it's solidly horror. I don't feel like <laughs> it, 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 it's, ju- it's, a, it's just a horror book and that, that's all yeah. good. But with this, it does, there's there's some fantasy elements. It's definitely historical. You know, it, it's, it goes in some other directions that, you know, so mm-hmm. yeah. Well, uh, if you don't mind, I saw you posted online the other day that you just uh, finished your next novel. I did. <laughs> I'm assuming you can't tell us much about it, but if there's anything you can tell us. Uh, I can't say the title yet because I'm actually wondering if we're going to change it because I'm okay. not like actually, I feel like because I, I love that you picked the name of my collection as like such a great title because I'm really <laughs> proud of the title of that one, but then it almost becomes this like weight over me. Like I can't always come I up can with see that. great and like the yeah. next time I'm like I don't know I'm willing to say to my editor if you want to change the title we can work on a different one because it's, mm-hmm. it's a placeholder title perhaps although the Rust Maidens was originally a placeholder title and now I can't imagine it having another it, name so sometimes that works out in the end but my next book it's about a ghost neighborhood and ooh, the girls nice. who escaped the ghost neighborhood and they are uh, having to go back 
after many years away, some things are drawing them back. So it's interesting because I, I love that you said that Reluctant Immortals has a similar uh -huh. feel to Pretty Mary's. This next one has more of a similar feel to the Rust Maidens, which is oh, the okay. first time I've actually had something that I've been like, okay, this is this is a pretty solidly like it's definitely not the same world. It's definitely not the same characters, but it's it's more just the feel of like an, a neighborhood kind of decayed okay. and coming back and kind of facing that sort of trauma and darkness from the past. So it definitely had tonally is very similar. Interesting. So, yeah. And is yeah. that uh, is that coming out in like next year or probably I don't know any details yet. So it'll depend on the editing process. That could take a while, maybe yeah. not a while. I don't know. <laughs> <yet>. <laughs> Hopefully not forever, only because I'm hoping it's not, you know, in that bad of shape. But who knows? Right. Who knows? I'm very open to uh, whatever the whatever my editor suggests. So <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm definitely looking forward to it. And like I said, I can't recommend Reluctant Immortals enough. I also I do just want to throw a plug again um for rust maidens and uh pretty mary's all in a row as well i mean basically just go like to the amazon author page and there's like you're you're not going to go wrong with anything on there so <laughs> um but yeah thank you so much for coming on the show and uh i hope we i i'm 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 assuming there's a possibility you might be at StokerCon next year since it's going to be in pittsburgh oh yeah 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 definitely so. cool i i think i'm gonna try and make it out there so maybe we'll run into each other <laughs> yeah yeah definitely yeah. look for me yes yeah and we will be in uh, obviously we're in the violent vixens anthology we're also okay. going to be in another dark peninsula press anthology together the forbidden magic okay uh, very cool so. yay yeah, but uh, thank you so much for coming on and, and talking to us. And I guess we'll leave it there. So stay weird, stay curious, and I will talk to you guys soon. Bye. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.